I am David Goldstein. And I am Brian Brinkman. You are tuned into episode 118 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. Generally speaking, this is the podcast in which Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of getting a listener to listen to other bands. These are usually not jam bands. Sometimes, as of late, they happen jam bands. That's okay, too, because as always, we love Fish, we are Fish fans. Sometimes fish fans get a little myopic, focus all of their pent-up energy only on their favorite band, and their favorite band alone can tell you what color variation dress John Fishin was wearing on certain dates. That's great, but we want to try to get you out of Beyond the Pond. Listen to some other music. That's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. That's what we have been doing, and it's what we're back here to do again. We had a brief respite throughout the end of February into March, and here we are. Spring is upon us. So many albums have been released, are going to be released. Our favorite bands are on tour or going on tour. There's just so much happening in the world of music. We have bands that are reuniting, hint, hint, hint. So much happening in the world of music right now that we had to check back in, make sure you, and I mean you, I really mean you, are not being super myopic about your listening tastes and are getting away from the familiar things that you love, that you want to hug, that you want to embrace, that make you happy and challenge you as a listener, which will be ultimately more rewarding. And so in today's episode, with so much happening, we decided that it is time to focus on a band that means a lot to Dave and I, a band that, as we're going to discover, has meant different things to us as individuals, but a band has always been kind of like drifting under the surface as we've talked about music, as we followed their career, as we've loved their career, as we've explored the depths of their music and kind of everything that is about this band and what they stand for. So we're going to dive in the same way that we did in the past with U2 and Radiohead and Pavement and Wilco. We're going to dive into the world of The Walkman, one of our favorite aughts-era bands who is making a comeback here in April 2023, playing a string of shows. Dave will be at one of them. We wanted to use this as something of a guide for those of you out there who either love this band and wanted to dive deeper into them or have kind of casually heard of them and wanted a primer as you got into them. I think that we're going to serve both purposes today while doing a lot, a lot of useful and therapeutic venting about one of our favorite bands. Absolutely. Venting both useful and therapeutic. So... Some of the themes we're going to explore in this episode include the aughts through the eyes of budding middle-aged hipsters, contentment in rock and roll, the return of the 70s singer-songwriter, 
and the Great Recession in Music. So before we get to that, we've got a few uh, house-cleaning things that we have to take care of. We felt like we couldn't um, really jump into the walk without doing a few other things first. So briefly, first thing we're going to do is a uh, Mexico, Fish Mexico 2023 review. At this point, that will have been a little under a month ago, but we felt uh, we should touch it upon it. What say you, Brian? So yeah, so it's been just about a month since Fish's Fortnite run in Mexico, Mexico 2023 happened, and we wanted to approach this less as a let's go show by show and more kind of broader, bigger themes of the overall run. So we're each going to share a theme and we'll kind of talk into this. My first theme in terms of what I took away from Fish Mexico 2023 is the sonic experimentation is working in Fish's jamming again. Uh, I went back through and I re-listened to my favorite jams of the Mexico run before we recorded this episode. And I just kept thinking to myself that the excitement, the danger, the risk, the newness, the kind of cutting edge feel that we got from so many Fish jams throughout 2021 feels to me like it's back sonically across Fish 2023, at least in the onset here um, with the Mexico run. Namely, the Blazon, the Ruby Waves, the Bathtub Gin, the Split Open and Melt, Choctaw's Torture, a um, few others I may be forgetting. Um, the Simple, I would say. The band sounds as though, well, it sounds as though Trey has unlocked some new effects from the synthesizer pedals he was using and they sound like uh bullet the blue sky era edge uh from u2 and most notably they sound to me as though they are allowing more pockets for mike gordon to be creative and rise up out of the ether and as a result, I found I, I was hearing more band communication throughout the jamming in uh, in the Mexico run. What are your thoughts on all of that, Dave? Do you to kind of do you, do you hear it the same way that I do, or do you are you am I completely off base? No, I don't think you're off base at all. I think part of it is uh, the Mexico run is the first time the whole band has ever used in ear monitors. It's true, and I think that has to be helping them hear each other, hear a balance, and plus. For those watching on the webcast, you had to hear uh, the great Vance Powell got to mix the whole thing. So when the first webcast Thursday came out, everyone said, oh my God, I can hear Mike Gordon. This is really balanced. It was a really excellent mix that very much emphasized the rhythm section. A lot of Mike Gordon, a lot of John Fish, and you can really hear the snare in your gut. And with regards to the effects, yeah, I agree. When you're talking about the bullet, the blue sky effect, that's when... Um, Big hit at the start of that song where, of course, live versions, Bono's like, Edge, let's hear, was it Sarajevo out of your speaker? <laughs> you heard that effect a lot in the, the version of Free. I think they played an opening yes. night. Yeah, a lot of the zoom sound. So, um, yeah, I got out of Mexico. If you catch fish on the right night, they're still fucking thrilling. I mean, Friday's second set, I think that might have been a top five set had it been played in 2022. And that set literally contained one of like the best versions of the bathtub gin they played in their history. Like I'm talking 
NASA 03, I'm talking Magnaball, I'm talking the Turbogen, June 28, 2000 from Holmdel. Like the fact that they could have a song as old as Bastogen and played as many times and still find new and interesting and thrilling ways to play it, very, very impressive. I mean, in terms of the sound mix, in terms of uh, the effects, it kind of felt like a carryover from the very solid New Year's run. Um, on the downside, I think the song selection and the set listing is getting a bit stale. I think it's mm-hmm. still good to see that the old war horses are always in rotation. Um, I don't think a second set should ever be longer than six songs. And sometimes, especially I think on Saturday, it was kind of like, a, let's throw everything against the wall with a lot of nine-minute versions of things to see what sticks. And, you know, kind of um, 80s dead. If they did a run, like one night you scarred fire night, one night you terrapin night, one night's uh, your estimated eyes night. So sometimes I feel like with fish... Although they did not play Tweezer this run, interestingly enough. They didn't play Tweezer yeah. or Carini, which is interesting. They've almost sometimes Trey falls a bit into like, all right, here's the downwift night, here's the bathtub night, here's um you know what I'm saying. It's uh they have a lot of recent songs, they have a lot of chestnuts, I'm not saying every night has to be a breakout night, but mix it up a little bit. Yeah, this is something we've been talking about kind of offline as we've been reassessing Fish 2022 and now early 2023. I'm on the same page with you. I think ultimately the set list just needs some attention right now. Um, I think one of my favorite things about 2021 Fish was that song placement did not matter anymore. The idea of hearing a song like Slave to the Traffic Light midway through the first set, hearing a song like Carini in the encore, um, hearing a song like NICU be a jam vehicle early in a show, Pebbles and Marbles be a jam vehicle early in the show. Rules felt like they were broken, especially throughout that fall tour, where just because a song typically opened a second set or typically was an encore or typically closed a set did not mean that it needed to be played or would be played in that slot uh, during a particular show. And that created a very disorienting feeling and it allowed fans this opportunity to really see songs in areas that they had never really expected to see them. I kind of feel like we found the natural endpoint through the, of that throughout the 2022 summer tour where flow started to uh, fall away a little bit. And personally, I think that the best set of the overall summer tour, and I would say one of the best sets of the year being 1230 of New Year's Eve and 8-5 of the summer tour, those two sets, not a ton of huge surprises, just a lot of big heavy hitters in really solid spots. Here's your man with 8-5 was again. Uh, 8-5, you've got a big Soul Planet, a big Ruby Waves, huge Down with Disease. Oh, that was Atlantic City. Big Ghost. That was Atlantic City. That was AC. Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was the first night of AC. And so that show really showcases that like, if you put these big songs back to back to back to back, you get a really huge show. That doesn't seem like it's that uh, like stunning of a, revel- a revelation, but it is kind of shocking how rare you actually get those types of shows. When 40 years in, we kind of do know what works and we kind of know that like Julius Possum isn't the most exciting way to open up a second set of the final show of a run. I don't want to pick too many (laughs) nits, but that Saturday night, uh, as you noted, where you had a lot of like nine minute versions, I just think it could be beneficial as the band is in a really celebratory year 
um, and a nostalgic year in a lot of ways to kind of take stock of what worked, maybe tighten up set lists a little bit so it's not all just off the cuff and really try to make as much out of these 90-minute sets as we have so we don't necessarily walk away feeling like certain things were just kind of thrown together because that's what the band was feeling at the moment. Yeah, lots of Trey looking down at the sheet of paper at his foot and being like, well, all right, let's try that. Yeah, let's try that. Let's try that. <laughs> right, right. Right. I think overall, as we as we transition here towards uh, their spring, their little spring run that they're going to do here in mid-April, I feel really good about the jamming. I'm curious to see how the band approaches uh, overall shows. Um, we also, th- this is our jam band portion of the show. We wanted to talk briefly because where we're ta- where we're recording right now, Dave and I have both just seen our uh, two young up and coming jam bands, our two favorites that we've been tracking. I think that they've made appearances in every episode of uh, BTP 2.0. I don't know if this is the new war on drugs trick, but uh, you know we're 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 talking about none other than Goose and Eggy. Dave saw Goose on 3-8, the opening night of the cap run. I saw Eggy on 3-11 here in Denver. They did not cover Amber. They did not cover Beautiful Disaster, but uh, they did play a pretty good set. Um, Starting with your show, Dave, um, tell me a little bit about what it was like for you to see Goose for the first time since Radio City last year. Oh, no, Uh, you saw a Taboo show. Yeah, I saw... um... I saw the Mohegan Sun Taboo show, which is very enjoyable. I was coming down with turn out to be bronchitis at that show, so I kind of <laughs> felt like I was in a different world, but the show was great. So yeah, that was uh, March 8th at the Capitol. It was the first time I've seen them since then. Uh, I've been listening to them quite a bit, obviously. Uh, I thought 3-8 was a fantastic show. Uh, of the five shows that they play at the Capitol Theater, it's all but Friday night. That was a bit of an egg. Otherwise, they were all very strong in their own ways. I mean, what's different about Goose and Fish, I don't want to say Fish isn't hungry, but Goose is still at the point where they're really trying to build a fan base. So they're trying things out like big multiple night runs at the Capitol Theater. I think um, by the time this goes live, they'll be back on spring tour. I think all those shows are being webcast on Nugs, which is a really crazy, impressive way to build a fan base. They're just, you know, I mean, like when Fisher's in their early 30s, they could corner faster and play faster and recover from shows faster. That's kind of where Goose is now. They're on the come up. Mm-hmm. And what they do is fast and energetic and peaky. And, and you know, it sounds different than Fish. I would say still... Sound-wise, I put Goose in more of a kind of like an 80s, almost like late 80s Bruce Hornsby, Tunnel of Love era Springsteen, mm-hmm. AOR sound versus Fish's more Hendrix 70s Zappa sounds. But yeah, it was excellent. It was, uh, they have quite the following. The place was packed to the gills on a Wednesday night. And I appreciate the fact that the show ended right at 12, so I could catch the 12.15 train back to New York City. But yeah, the show definitely... Did nothing to alter my goose fandom. It was uh, it was a great night. That is, I I've gone back and I've listened to the larger um, uh, uh, 
run again. I, I watched it all live as it happened, and I've gone back and listened to it since. I think that 3.8 is still my favorite show of the overall run, just because you got those huge jams to kick off the run, that jam into Electric Avenue, into All I Need, and you've got that huge drive in set two, not to mention the Earthling or Alien and the Wisteria Lane. Um, it just feels like a band that walks on stage knowing that they've got five nights to do whatever they want. And they just really take advantage of that from no. Yeah. That was the thing. A lot of bands with the five night run, there's a warm up night. This is no warm up night. They were no. getting to it from the jump. It was by no means a warm up. I might've put my family in. I think I have Friday night. Oh, not Friday. I'm sorry. I have Thursday night. Over Wednesday night. Wednesday is probably Wednesday was probably my third favorite, but it was great splitting hairs. Like I said, the only one I outwardly did not enjoy was Friday. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same. I, I did not enjoy the Friday night show, um, and when I went back to re-listen to it, I, I didn't like it anymore. Uh, I liked it actually a little less than I did in the moment. It just kind of felt like a flat show and flat set list, but you had Thursday and Saturday, these very high energy shows with really good jams. Saturday obviously opens with echo Hollywood nights, Bob Don and back into echo. You got a huge hunger site, Arcadia and set two drip field encore Thursday. You've got uh, that great Rockdale, great born, huge tumble, big Madovan, really funky Rosewood. And then can't overlook the final night of the show that has our, of, of the run. It's got an incredible set one, Time to Flee, Indian River. Butter Rum goes deep for really like the first time. I mean, it's it's hinted at deep jamming, but it hasn't gone like this. And then uh, you noted it yesterday in our text thread, kind of this 2020 speed rock set two that I think it works really well because the band is, they got a bigger sound than they did three years ago, but it, it definitely is in that kind of type 1.5 jamming. Um, I saw Eggy a couple nights after you did, they opened up for Twiddle. Uh, yes, I paid Twiddle to see Eggy. Um, Some of that money and your ticket went to maintain Mahali's dreads and tattoos. How do you feel? <laughs> it was uh it was it was a moral choice. Uh, it was a moral uh, uh, decision and, and and dilemma that I had to deal with. But I really wanted to see Aggie. I was sad to have missed their uh, their show at Cervantes back on December first. I had just started a new job and had to kind of uh, work through that through that uh, uh, period. Went to see him with a couple of buddies, um, played a single set show. Uh, ultimately, I went in with kind of the same, I don't know if I, I, I feel the same way about them now than I did about Goose when I went to see Goose for the first time. There's kind of that, you know, lingering buildup. But I went in kind of with this curiosity of, okay, I like what I've heard on tape. I like the jamming that I've heard. These guys seem quirky. They seem like they got a really good sense of humor. They are nerding out to the extreme, and I'm pretty into that. Um, what is it like live? Do they fill a room? Can they hold an audience in the palm of their hands? And to those questions, I got a resounding yes. Uh, their sound is way bigger in a room than it sounds on um, on tape. I think that they could do their their, their recordings could uh, could benefit a little bit more by just a little bit more attention to the overall mastering of it because. There's something big about the way they sound in a room that they don't sound on tape. Um, they're really compelling with the audience and their jams connect. We didn't get any big jams like um, 
my 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 watercolor days from February 6, 2022 or my Onitsuka Tiger from December 3rd, 2022. But we got a really cool funky uh jam out of finding and losing cover of cats under the stars uh Burritos, uh, the mashup burritos, El Chavo, uh, mashup with she came in through the bathroom window that turned into a beautiful jam. Um, and then we got Golden Gate Dancer with none other, none other than Mahali on lead guitar. To which I had to say, man, the guy shredded it. It was, it was, it was a great hat tip from him to the band. Um, the place was packed. I saw him at the Ogden, and over the last couple of weeks. It's been about 10 days since I saw him. I keep getting messages from people being like, were you at that Eggy show? Did you see that <laughs> Eggy show from like friends and colleagues here in Denver? So I feel like something happened. They they drew enough people. They played a good enough show. And whenever they play next, it might be a little bit of a harder ticket. Eggy's a good band. They're uh, young, energetic, extremely dorky, like you say. They're like, the dork just drips from the stage with those guys. But it's... uh. It's beautiful. Yeah. So dorky. I love it. Not a lot of sex appeal. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, they <laughs> they know how to groove. And I think uh, they're going to be an interesting band to watch grow because they they are much more like Fish was in their 20s than Goose is. Yeah. And the their rhythm it, section It's all is, about the music. All about the music. Rhythm section is incredibly good. The bass player, Mike Goodman, drummer Alex Bailey. They're really, Bailey leads a lot of the jams. You just listen. You can really follow the drums and some of the stuff that he's doing back there. And the kid is just uh, very impressive. He also has these great facial expressions where he scrunches his eyes up, then he'll like adjust his glasses and go back for like a fill. But they're, uh, I like those guys quite a bit and hope that um, they're playing Brooklyn Bowl and. Uh, April 28th with the Kitchen Dwellers, who are not terribly inspiring jam grass, but I might pull a Brinkman and just go for the opening band and leave. So, I'll tell you what, I felt a lot of freedom. I went with two of my buddies. We went, we got a really nice spot, waited about 15 minutes. They walked out on stage. They played an hour-long set, and we left the venue, gave our spot to someone else, already like pre-warmed, killer spot, great sight lines, and we went to a, a steakhouse and we got a steak. It was a perfect Saturday night out. So I would encourage you, find a buddy, go see Eggy, leave, and go get a nice dinner. Make a night out of it. What's the steakhouse called again? Bastion's, the home of the sugar steak. It's a uh, Denver Home of the steak. sugar steak. Did you get the sugar steak? I got the sugar steak with uh, sautéed mushrooms and onion and a uh, twice-baked potato and a side of roasted veggies and a nice... Uh, grilled Caesar salad before everything else came out. My God. It was a good meal. I am just reaching for the Pepsi just hearing about that right now. I had had enough steak the next morning to make myself a steak sandwich, which was good. Okay, last before we get to uh, the Walkman, Brian and myself, this is, uh, let's see, we're three months, almost four months into 2023. We just wanted to talk about each of the quarter mark. Quarter mark, Yes. Spring has just begun. We just wanted to give a quick rundown of our each of our five favorite albums of 2023 so far. Not jam band records, but uh, there's been some very solid releases this year. So, 
Brian, we got yeah, yeah. Before before we before we give our list, I'm just curious. What is 2023 music been like for you? And kind of what are your thoughts as we're because um, just for our listeners out there, we used to do a halfway top albums so far episode. We're not going to do that this year. We're just going to do quarterly check ins and then do our top albums episode in December. Um, so I want to get a feel as we move through this year, Dave. What has 2023 been like for you from a overall? Uh, just musical discovery standpoint, and like where are you, how, how are you feeling about music at this point in time? It's been phenomenal for musical discovery because there's two bands in my top five that I never heard of until two months ago. So it needed, often what happens is you get into your 40s, you end up listening to new records from old bands or just like stuff that sounds exactly like the old bands that you enjoy. But I've actually, there's been some room for some good discovery in 2023. So I'm positive. I feel similar. I um, I was just going through my list. I currently have 26 albums on my top albums playlist. Kind of taking the approach that if I want to listen to it twice and I dig it, even on the second listen, it's just going on that playlist and then it will be there for the entire year. Try not to cram everything during the September, October period as I've done in years past. So I feel really good about the music. Um, I'm in the similar point to where you are, where there's a lot of bands that are on here that are first time appearing on my list, while a few stragglers, a few repeat uh, um, uh, albums from artists that uh, I've loved in, in years past. It feels like this is the first post-COVID year in a lot of cases from music, where albums are just kind of coming out. So what is your top five at this point in time? My top five, number five, a band, I believe they're Scottish. I'm not sure. They're called The Tubs. The album is called Dead Meat. It's um, little jangle, little power pop. The singer has sort of like an 80s Richard Thompson feeling to his voice. Just like very well put together jangle pop nuggets with excellent vocals and the album's only like 26 minutes long, so you can listen to it, put it on, and just put it on again. Excellent record. Um, yeah, that's that's my number three, and I have the same sentiment. It's just, it kind of combines two styles of music I want to hear on a regular basis, and it's all bite-sized that I can just throw it on, make some dinner, throw on something else, or throw it on again. It's perfect. And the dude does sound like Richard Thompson. He's got like the same... 100%. The brogue. Richard Thompson... Yes. Saying so, uh, my number four, um, an artist who I've talked about in the past, it is an old artist I enjoy. A new record by Steve Mason, album is called Brothers and Sisters. It's um, big primal scream, screamadelica vibes. He says it's his big FU Brexit record, so there's a lot of some of the lyrics. <laughs> some of the lyrics are, I mean, if the album is called Brothers and Sisters, you can imagine some of the lyrics are kind of like you know, upbeat all together poppy type stuff but he's got these big house pianos um he often has a lot of contributions from a pakistani vocalist and some of the tracks it's just it's actually one of might be my favorite steve mason record in a decade and if the only steve mason that you know is from the beta band you should check yourself because he's got his solo records he's got king biscuit time he's got black affair he's uh one of the most underrated artists of the past 20 years in my opinion so, just moving quickly, number three, Danny Arakaki, Tumble in Shade. Danny, of course, being one of the, uh, the, the guitarists for Garcia Peoples, put out a solo record. 
Very well produced, well written. Um, it may be the best sounding thing to come from like the Garcia people's family. Like he really put a lot of time into the sound of this. He's got some interesting, there's also like female harmony vocals. He's got our good buddy Ryan Jewell on drums. Just a excellent record, which was released on Riley Walker's Husky Pants label. Number two, I think Brian's going to touch on this one as well. Yola Tango, This Stupid World. You know we love Yola Tango. I think this is their best record since 2013's Fade. It dials in their sound, the crispy, crunchy, mid-fi, shoegaze, 90s Matador sound, more so than any other Yola Tango record in a while. It's got some songs that are going to sound huge on stage. And my number one, so... This is fascinating to me because this is a band I knew nothing about. I just read about this record on Brooklyn Vegan and thought, hmm, this sounds like something I would enjoy. It's a band out of Memphis, Tennessee. It's a trio called Ibex Clone. I think Ibex being that thing that looks like a goat. Clone. I don't know why they're called that. Album is called All Channels Clear. It's kind of like 80s college rock fantasy camp. There's post-punk, there's R.E.M. is Jangle, there's parts that sound like early Bob Mould, there's some incredible shoegaze guitar tones, and the thing is, the guitarist in this band is, like, ridiculously talented. It's like, it's, the guitars are far better than they need to be, and just the array of tones and sounds that he gets are constantly, it's a guitarist record, and it's got these really great melodic vocals, and I don't know. It just is rare in this day and age to be so incredibly surprised by an album. I'll be listening to this for the rest of 2023. So, uh, Ibex Clone, All Channels Clear. They're playing their first shows in New York in the first week of May. I'm very excited to go check them out. So, to you, Brian. So, my number five is a band that has made multiple appearances in my top five, my top ten over the last half decade, and that is The Next their new record travel um four songs about an hour long you get what you expect with the next and if you like this kind of music you're going to want to return to it we are talking extended extended jams from an excellent jazz trio out of australia highly recommend listeners of this show if you've never checked out the next travel unfold and three are excellent records as a uh, uh, entry point, all recent albums from the band, but really you just can't go wrong with them. And Travel is another huge, huge record uh, from this band. Uh, number four, I mean, this is about as old reliable as it gets for me, but I am what I am. Mr. Bob Dylan recently released his Fragments box set, which covers his uh, Time Out of Mind period. It basically looks at 96, 97 Bob Dylan. The songs that he wrote in in, in uh, the buildup to Time Out of Mind, alternate recordings, a bunch of other songs that would end up on Love and Theft, Modern Times, um, even a few that have stuck around since then. Some of the that that were disappeared uh, uh, um, uh, ahead of ahead of this point in time, or were early uh, kind of versions of of songs like Not Dark Yet. Uh, you just get a lot at a really interesting period for Bob Dylan. Dylan heads know all about what the mid-90s meant from a rival standpoint, from a kind of uh, uh, pivot and turn standpoint in his overall career. Anyone who doesn't know, um, 96, 97, and specifically Time Out of Mind, is the the moment where Bob Dylan 
kind of leaves the past consciousness and, and enters modernity and enters uh, the, the, the moment in the late 90s where suddenly he was making relevant music again for a lot of people. And uh, from here, you go to Love and Theft, you go to Modern Times, you get Rough and Rowdy Ways out of, out of this kind of record. There's just so much that came um, as a result of this period in his career. And I just love immersing myself in it all, plus a bunch of live material. Uh, number three for me, we covered this, The Tubs, Dead Meat. Number two, Yola Tango's This Stupid World. Uh, as Dave said, I think this is their best record since Fade, and it might be their best record since before that. It's just a total accomplishment. Walls of Sound, really delicate, beautiful songs as well. Tons of jamming influence on this. It uh, This feels like, you know, Yola Tango's always been one of those bands that's towed the line between indie rock and the jam world. Like, they're firmly in indie rock, but they play 20-minute songs. They play 30-minute songs. And people, you know, listen to their tapes. People go and see multiple shows of theirs. This song, or this album feels most uh, indebted to that kind of weird middle ground of indie jam. I love it. I'm eating it up. I don't see this record dropping out of my top five. I think that this will be in my top five by year end. I've listened to it a bunch. Um, yeah, some of the pedals that Ira's using on that record are, uh, especially on the first song, Sinatra Drive Breakdown, some of the guitar soloing is very, uh, very 4.0 Trey. Very, very 4.0 Trey. Yeah, it's that kind of wall of sound. It's a, it's a little frightening. It sounds kind of like uh, you always talk about, like, um, you know, taking off from an aircraft carrier. Dilly, 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 of, dilly. Yeah, <laughs> what, what you get from just, like, metal on metal flying through the air. It's amazing. Um, my number one, I don't know what how, how this is going to shake out, but this is the record that has blown me, out, blown me away the most this year. Uh, Edward Larry Gordon uh, records as Laraji. He is a uh, late 70s, early 80s multi-instrumentalist, specialized in piano, zither, and uh, mabira. He has recorded uh, interpretations of Brian Eno's music, lives in that world of jazz, ambient, noise, experimentation. His record, Segway to Infinity, has just blown my feeble little mind apart every time I've listened to it. I think I've only listened to it three times. It's a pretty long record. Uh, I think we're I think it goes on for about 90 minutes to two hours. It's, it's a lot to take in over like only eight or nine tracks, but man, if you can just like bury yourself in this record for the period in time, just like throw a gummy in, go sit on the back porch, let the kind of cool damp air of spring overtake you and put some headphones on and listen to this. I promise you for that period in time, you're going to be in heaven. So I don't know where this is going to end up by year's end, but right now, this is my favorite record at the quarter mark of 2023. We will revisit these lists at the end of June to see where we're at. And on that note, let's get to the Walkman.
All right. So we're going to talk about the Walkman, a band from New York City, a band that, as I'm going to get into, um, make me feel two things, one of which is a fervent desire to have my heart broken and end up in a dive bar drinking whiskey while various friends come by to see me in more disorienting states just to check in and make sure everything's okay. And also a band that makes me want to live in New York city. These are the emotions that this band elicits for me. Um, the Walkman is a band that we have talked about covering for a while on this show. We have shared various albums from them. I know I gushed heavily about Lisbon and heaven during our top albums of the decade episode back in 2019. Um, we're going to attempt to break apart this band, talk about them in a chronological fashion, and introduce them to some of you while celebrate them with others of you ahead of the band's uh, return here in late April. Um, David, as our resident New Yorker, um, not sure your experience with Heartbreak, but we'll probably get into that in this episode just based on the content. Tell us in as simple a terms as possible, why should you listen to The Walkman? Why should you listen to The Walkman? Well, the long and the short of it is that they rock. However, they rock in an extremely unique fashion that is unique to them, and they have a very well-defined sound, which is guitars sounding like church bells and an organ that almost kind of origin... Organ majesty. It's like the sounds that they concoct, despite kind of being lumped in with the whole early 2000s, mid-2000s, New York return to rock, meet me in the bathroom type scene. They're with those bands, but they don't sound like any of them. I would say they're lumped in with that scene, but they're kind of not of it. And in Hamilton Lighthouser, they have a very emotive very unique lead singer who writes quite elliptical lyrics and kind of, he can do Dylan, he can do Harry Nilsson, he can croon, he can do like the Matt Berninger, Pink Rabbits, like, oh, I'm so wasted at the end of the night type style singing. And it's all just presented in a package which is very exciting and bright and has a style. The Walkman's guitars, I keep coming back to church bells. They don't sound like guitars. Like I watch them on their live shows and try to think like what kind of effects, what kind of pedals, what kind of gain are they doing like to get to that different kind of noise. So ultimately you listen to them for the rock and roll and the fact that the drummer Matt Barrick is one of indie rock's most athletic, most on point, incredible drummers, just a little guy behind the kit playing his heart out. So rock and roll presented in a very unique reverb heavy way i guess that's kind of why i listen to the walkman and also because they bring forth the motions they kind of they make me dewy-eyed and nostalgic and they kind of have a classicism about them almost like a frank sinatra type feeling like the old ways they were always prone to wearing suits when they played on stage or a stateliness to the Walkman, more so as they went on in their career. 
Yeah, all of that uh, is is spot on. I think the only things I, I would just add on to is there's there's a professionalism to the way that they approach indie rock music that I find really appealing. Uh, it's it, it almost feels like a caricature, but it also feels like they understand that there's you know. Um, there's an HR component to all of this. They are getting paid at the end of the day. They are trying to raise children. Yes, yes. Um, but they are trying to do this. You know, I'm always fascinated by, um, and, and I don't mean to make this comparison because this is like the most unfair comparison you can make, but, you know, just follow me for a second. I'm always fascinated by the period in the Beatles recording history where they were transitioning between recording from like 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. to recording in the evening to ultimately recording in the middle of the night as they got into Revolver and uh, as they got into Sgt. Pepper's. But that kind of like Beatles for sale rubber soul period where they still showed up during the daytime, they still were in really nice suits, but they were breaking away to smoke a joint and uh, let that take over their recording sessions as the day went on. That's kind of that vibe of the Walkman where they look proper, but ultimately like these guys can probably, at least based on their music, they can drink you under the table many times over and still end up walking down the street, cracking really lucid jokes. I have with their it, friends. a good Intel that they do in fact drink. Yeah. <laughs> this is a good, this is good Intel. Yeah. Um, they, I think also lyrically you touched on it from a, you know, vocally, from, but also lyrically from a Dylan standpoint, from a Harry Nilsson standpoint, a Lennon standpoint for Hamilton Lighthouser. For someone like myself, um, I'm, I'm in my late 30s. Uh, the aughts indie rock revival that meet me in the bathroom period all happened for me towards the tail end of high school into college into my, my entry point into adulthood, which, which happened right around the great recession as that, as that was taking full effect. And I don't really know of many bands that better nail what it felt like to be in your twenties at that point in time than the Walkman, the, the frustration, the longing for something, uh, pure longing for something that you know you missed and then that late period that we're going to talk about towards the end of this episode where the band ultimately became parents and realized that they had an opportunity to to positively influence the next generation and really took that to heart really took that with conscious um, in terms of their own mental health and their own way of loving their kids so there are two bands that we do need to mention before we talk about the Walkmen. And I should say, if we haven't already, the Walkmen are five members, all five of which have been members since the start up until the end of the band. Matt Barracks on drums. Peter Matthew Bauer is their bassist slash organist. Hamilton Lighthouser is their singer-songwriter, frontman. Uh, Paul Maroon is their guitarist. And Walter Martin is a multi-instrumentalist. Um, he plays a lot of organ too. Who plays a lot of organ yeah. too? They kind of sw they swap a lot. Um, there are two bands that originated or that that, that birthed the Walkman. One of which is Jonathan Fireeater. The other of which is the Recoys. Give us a little bit of backstory about Jonathan Fireeater. So Jonathan Fireeater, that's fire apostrophe eater. Basically, Jonathan Fireeater, they kind of paved the way for, but ultimately predated the New York City returned to rock, and they kind of suffered as a result. They were kind of a band 
without its scene because the scene had yet to arrive. That band comprised three members of the Walkmen. Um, it had all the members of the Walkmen other than Peter Bauer and Hamilton Lighthouser. And I think they had all grown up together. They knew each other in high school and were playing in bands as far back as then. And kind of the straw that stirred the drink was the front man, a fellow named Stuart Lupton, who had sex appeal. This guy, he kind of sounded like a cross between Iggy Pop and Nick Cave. And he was allegedly, because I never saw this band, magnetic on stage. But he also suffered from major drug problems, in particular heroin. And if you're a heroin addict, the Lower East Side of New York City in the late 90s is not where you would want to be. So this was a band, if you read the book, Meet Me in the Bathroom, I mean, members of Interpol, members of uh, like the National, they would see Jonathan Fire Eater and say, oh my God, this is incredible. These guys are going to be huge. I want to be in a band because of that. And I mean, people would see them, they go on to form their own bands. But I think ultimately... They had a debut record called Wolf Songs for Lambs that was on DreamWorks. I just don't think that the world is ready for them in the late 90s. Like New Yorkers would lose their minds, yeah. and then they'd go play a show somewhere in the Midwest, and like 10 people would show up. So it didn't, popularity in New York City at the time did not translate to the rest of the country. This would change. But kind of by the time the first record came out, the star had already dimmed. Yeah, the 90s were, I feel like New York was slightly of an, a, a bit of an afterthought in terms of where to find good bands until you had that, that post 9-11 burst of, of new artists. And that's not to say that there weren't great art, great bands coming out of New York. Jonathan Fireeater is one of them. But yeah, it, it, was, it was a vibe that was five years too early. And ultimately the Stuart Lipton... Uh, uh, saga is, is, a, is a sad one. Uh, it's a tragic one. Um, but ultimately, uh, the band, uh, led to three of the members of the Walkmen. <clears throat> they got a studio. They were able to put themselves, uh, to a point where when the Walkmen ultimately formed, they were able to really take this next, uh, level, uh, and then this, this next step up, uh, as, as a recording band. Um, uh, the other band, the Recoys. Some of their songs on their 2003 album, Recoys, uh, were re-recorded as Walkman songs, um, which kind of makes sense. This sounds like the Walkman without the Walkman. It says Hamilton Lighthouser, who was once a young intern uh, in Arlington, Virginia's legendary inner ear studio. He was credited with some engineering on Fugazi's Red Medicine from 1995. Great record. Great record. He, great record. Um this is Hamilton and bassist organist Peter Matthew Bauer, um, later of the Walkmen, recording together. And it really just sounds like, whereas Jonathan Fireeater sounds like its own fully formed idea of rock music in the late 90s, the Recoys kind of sounds like a stepping stone to indie rock of the aughts. It doesn't sound like anything uh, as substantial as Jonathan Fireeater. It kind of just sounds like shitty Walkman. <laughs> <laughs> It's fine. So, <laughs> historical curio. It's a historical curio. That's what it is. So the Walkman form, and uh, they release a couple of EPs, but they release their first LP in 2002. And we're going to kind of look at the Walkman in three parts here. We're going to take you through their first formative records. There's a big turn, and we're going to focus on kind of their late 
career peak, which late career only because they broke up uh, shortly after this. And then we're going to talk a little bit about kind of where they're at since then. But their debut record from 2002, everyone who pretended to like me is gone. Um, I had a couple of takeaways from this record. So this was the second rock Walkman record I heard. Um, as we're going to get into, I came to this band quite late, uh, an experience of mine throughout the aughts for a variety of reasons, partially because I went to a small mountain town for college and not a lot of artists came through there. And I was kind of in college at that point, right before, like you could just get everything from a streaming standpoint, but this was the second record I, I ever heard from them. And it gives you the Walkman formula, which is, as you noted, Cacophonous drums, huge organs, church bell guitars, and Hamilton Lighthouser holding the microphone with the cord wrapped around his hand, yelling in a way that should not sound melodic, but somehow really works as the start of uh, as as the lead singer uh, in a, in a band. And the other big thing that I heard. Um, uh, in listening to this record and re-listening to it is kind of this idea of song fragments versus songwriting. This album is filled with ideas, not many of which coalesce around a signature song idea, which we would hear as we got to the next record. But what are your general thoughts on everybody who, everyone who pretended to like me is gone? Very good as a foundational album. This is where they establish the pools of reverb, amazing drumming, the church bell guitars, I mean, all of the sonic touchstones that would make the Walkman are on this record. The songwriting has to tighten up. Like you say, I think it's got like 14 songs. It's almost an hour. It's way too long. It has, um, in terms of actual songs, certainly We've Been Had, which soundtracked the Saturn commercial. That's a great song. Wake Up is a great song. The title track is very good. There's like five or six really solid bangers for the live show but i think it's a difficult album to listen to start to finish just because first of all lighthouse's vocals are kind of dialed back in the mix more so than on upcoming walkman records so you kind of struggle to hear what he's saying i mean it's a very good record for walking around new york city looking at the skyscrapers and marveling how you're just like a speck among the big canyons of downtown Manhattan. So it's got a lot of atmosphere. It's a good album, but it's a foundational record. They would make better ones. Yeah, and like you get that middle part of the record, the Blizzard of 96, French Vacation, Stop Talking, that a lot of, it feels like, um, uh, uh, like in, in interim tracks, like, like a pause, like a thematic pause as you move through the record that would kind of, split apart segments of the record, but it's all together. And so it's very atmospheric um, in a way that they would be atmospheric in later records, but they would be atmospheric while writing songs. Um, one of the biggest takeaways thematically that I got from this, and it's kind of a theme I want to talk about as we go through this band, but is kind of this early aughts sensation that we missed the best in America. I remember this is like one of the first scenes in the Sopranos is, you know, the Sopranos comes out in January, 1999 is Tony Soprano talking about how he feels like he missed the best of it all. And such a focus of the Sopranos was him unpacking 
what mob, what mobsters were like in the fifties and sixties when they were real stand-up guys, a part of the community versus what they're like today and what his kids are like today and what everyone, uh, uh, how everyone takes for granted what is, what is available today. And I got that sentiment, like the idea of we've been had the idea of rue the day, um, you know, the, the album title itself, everyone who pretended to like me is gone. It all kind of speaks to this sense that the band is kind of pissed that they have to make music in the 21st century. And it seems like they would be much happier making music in the 1950s and 1960s. I I'm curious, like, do you hear that? And, and if so, like, how do you, how do you relate to that sentiment of, you know, we, we miss the best of America. Well, also living in New York city, this album came out post nine 11. So there was a lot of nostalgia for pre nine 11 New York city when we weren't scared shitless all the time and had the Twin Towers, that's more of what I get from just having lived in New York City at the time, at the time this record came out, they were kind of looking back towards the more more innocent time because we didn't have a ton to worry about in the late 90s. I mean, at least for somebody, maybe that's kind of a naive take, but I just remember going to college in the late 90s and being somewhat involved in politics, having kind of an idea of what was going on. And then kind of when George Bush stole the election from Al Gore, that was a wake-up call. And then, God, 9-11 obviously was even more so of a wake-up call. So, yeah, I think it's... I almost take it as more of nostalgia for a more innocent time in New York. I get that. And I, I feel like... That sentiment, you know, I remember growing up listening to the music of my dad's generation, and there was a reverence that that was the greatest music that could ever be made. And it was everywhere. It was in movies. It was in documentaries. It was plastered on Rolling Stone. It was on the radio. You couldn't escape that kind of music. And now there's like an easier way to escape that type of music and you can fall into different rabbit holes and you can discover um, that there was music that was coming out parallel to that sort of stuff that nobody was talking about and and you kind of had to discover on your own. I, I feel though, listening to this and kind of just thinking about where we were at as a culture in the early 2000s, I feel like we're still kind of stuck in that sentiment that we've missed the greatness, which has in some cases informed political movements of the last, uh, 10 years. Um, but I think ultimately our, our, our takeaways on this record, it's a very good foundational record that kind of sets a lot of important themes and tones about where the band is going to go without fully accomplishing, um, the larger goals, which from a transitional standpoint makes their second album, Bows and Arrows, from 2004, all the more stunning. Because, while I don't personally think that this is their best record, I think that it acts and listens a lot more like their best records and showcases a fusion of ambition, of uh, artistic uh, focus, and also just an album that sounds and feels fucking awesome and completely of its time in a really brilliant way. What are your thoughts on Bows and Arrows? Bows and Arrows is far more focused than the first album. Whereas 
with bows and arrows, he was kind of, Hamilton Leithauser was kind of, you know, singing around you, singing to the song, singing the atmosphere. This record, he's singing at you. He is like jumping out of the speakers. He is singing to the listener. The focus is there. And the first time I heard the second song, The Rat, which has kind of become the Walkman's signature song, you say, yeah. oh, you say, oh shit, where'd this come from? That's one of those, yeah. that's an oh shit, where'd this come from song. I mean, this record, it trims the fat, the songs are tighter, the guitars are louder, the howling, he's much, the vocals are much further up in the mix than on the prior record. And in terms of my own life, I think this came out in the spring of 2004. So that summer, I just largely spent studying for the bar exam. But this, to me, was a record I'd want to, like, blast in my headphones or left the apartment at, like, 1 o'clock in the morning with a Red Bull to go dancing. Like, to me, <sighs> the rat sounds like being 24 years old and getting a phone call at 12.30 saying, oh, we're going out. And be like, oh, all right, cool. Let's grab a Red Bull and get the fuck out of here. It's like a very, to me, it sounds like youth and excitement. But it, it, it does this thing that the Walkmen do that I'd love where those young men singing and howling and playing the guitars as loud as possible are concerned with adulthood that they know is looming around the corner. Um, okay. like that the refrain of, of the rat is when I used to go out, I knew everyone I know, or I knew everyone I saw. Now I go out alone if I go out at all. Mm. Like that to me sounds like the way I felt when I was like 25, 26 years old, where I was like starting to realize I had some responsibilities. And I was also realizing like the limitations of what I could do from a fun standpoint, because there were things that I wanted to do that I needed to kind of take care of myself to, to, to be able to do. Um, I got really big into running around this time, got really big into writing. I was reading a ton. I was traveling and like all these sorts of things required me to save a ton of money, save my body, save my, my own health. But I still really wanted that kind of like release that you could still touch that you got on like a Tuesday night in college. And it kind of like, it's that, weird tug of you're still really close friends with all your buddies in college, all your friends who you've made since your career started are all kind of in the same position that you're in where they're not in the jobs yet that they want to hold on to for an extended period in time. They're making decent money. And so what do you do? You just kind of go out and blow off some steam every couple of weeks and this record like toes that line between that really, really strange period between your mid-20s and your early 30s where responsibilities are creeping in, but they don't necessarily take over your life the way that they will by the time you have kids, you yeah. have a house, all that stuff. Um, I'm curious because like when we became friends, like, like we started this podcast, I was 32 years old. Um, so like my early, early thirties, you were in your late thirties at that point. I was in time. 38 in 27. Yeah. 38. No, yeah. I, well, no, I was, so, I, I was 37 when the podcast started 37. Right. So I don't know, like, I just know based off of like, whenever you talk about records from when you were in your mid twenties, what you were like, 
but I'm curious what you remember about that period and like that sense of that push and pull between being in college, letting loose and becoming like an actual functional adult who can raise children. Like, what do you recall about that period? Um, I look back at it fondly. I mean, I think everybody who has children kind of looks at the time when they did not have children fondly and having mineral responsibilities. But in retrospect, I mean, for me, it was law school. It was passing the bar exam. It was getting a, uh, a law job, meeting the girl, girlfriend who would eventually become my wife. Uh, I met my wife in 2004. We got married in 2009. So, yeah, I mean, like you're saying, the Walkman, this record is a good mix between youthful exuberance. And definitely when you kind of, when you get towards the second half, there's songs like 138th Street, uh, there's Hang On Shaban, No Christmas While I'm Talking, sort of when he gets into more of like Hamilton Lathhouse's more like Dylan speak, especially in 138th Street, which kind of predated the serious Dylan Brogue he would use on the Walkham's third record. But yeah, I mean like their MO on this album is a mix of youthful exuberance while kind of seeing some of the storm clouds hovering hovering off in the distance. 138th Street is like the perfect example of this. Like I was thinking about that, like that period in your life that we're talking about. It's like some friends are getting married. Some friends are meeting the woman that they're going to marry and they're starting to get more serious. A couple people buy a house. Some are still hanging out in bars. It's this like very weird period of transition. And most people will be on the other side of it in a few years. And 138th Street just like perfectly exemplifies that. Um, New Year's Eve, I wrote down that is the Walkman in a song. It's a story about lost love. The music rings out in an echo behind the lyrics. The vibe of the song is of nostalgia and the sense that America was always a dream. You just hear this band like attacking these big vague but like very vague and like kind of misty ideas that they have about life and about the way that they're evolving and the way that they're growing and they just write them in these like two minute songs that completely bowl you over at this point it's really an accomplishment this is also probably the walkman's commercial peak i mean at this point they played the boathouse on the oc i think it got like a 9.2 on pitchfork or something i mean it was seen as a huge leap forward and kind of seen as the record that was going to really try to catapult them into a level of say like the strokes or the white stripes at this point didn't really do that exactly but it was definitely a kick to see hamilton lathhauser singing uh singing little house of savages on the oc right <laughs> josh Schwartz I, is a fan it's it's a really good point and it's something that um i, I I wanted to track as we were going through this. You mentioned Pitchfork gave this record a 9.2. Pitchfork gave their debut album, Everyone Who Pretended to Like Me Has Gone, an 8.7. Both of these are examples of how much Pitchfork has changed in the last uh, 15 to 20 years because neither one of these records, I think, is touching an 8.0 at this point in time. But um, yeah, to your to, to your point that you made earlier from a focus standpoint, um, which I think also informs and allows for this band to have much more commercial success with this album. Uh, Everyone Who Pretended to Like Me Is Gone is 51 minutes long across 14 tracks. 
bows and arrows, 11 tracks, 42 minutes long. It's just mm. it punches you, does exactly what it needs to do. And it's gone. There's never a moment where you're like, and, and I love this now at this point in my life, listening to a record, being like, I really like this record, checking the tr- track listing and being like, oh, sweet. I'm on track eight of 11. Yeah. Like I- I'm getting what I need out of this. And then, and then I get to do something else. And that's a really nice thing. Um, what else we need to say here about anything we need to say here for uh, uh, Bows and Arrows before we transition into kind of the last record of this first period? It is the only Walkman album that Apple Music considers an essential album. <laughs> it's not my favorite. It is an essential album. It's probably my hmm third or fourth favorite Walkman album. It's a great record. There's ones I like more as uh, we we will get to but uh it's it's now my fourth favorite but i think that is a fourth favorite with a drop off after that okay all right so 2 years later 2006 the band would release two albums one all new material the other a note for note reinterpretation of a Harry Nilsson record that was done as a tribute to their soon-to-be-closing uh, record studio. So, A Hundred Miles Off comes out uh, on May 23rd, 2006. Pussycats, starring the Walkman, would come out on October 24th, 2006, just five months later. Um, I think that as we kind of look at this period... The band's arc is really fascinating in the sense that they started out really strong, hit a huge peak, but then there's this kind of plateau period with these two records before they finish out their overall career with a a pretty stunning peak, I would say. These two albums, they lean really heavily into the band's 70s era singer-songwriter influences in, in varying ways. The former... 100 Miles Off, a bit more 70s Dylan. Pussycats, obviously, is a tribute to Harry Nilsson. I'm not as huge of a fan of these two records. They they interest me in the sense of what the band was attempting to do uh, at this period in their career, and they do seem to inform where they would go, at least in the next record, You and Me, in 2008. But Dave, what are your thoughts on, let's start with 100 Miles Off as kind of a, a, a you know, temple of where the band was at at this point in time. So I call a hundred miles off their yes. And album. <laughs> um, it's just a collection of kind of somewhat unfocused pud pounders, all of which could have been still to be more like the opening track, Louisiana, which weirdly sounds like pavements range life. Um, mm. This is the record where Hamilton Lighthouser is leaning way hard into Rolling Thunder Review era Dylan on the vocals. Everything is and it's not as cool as it sounds. I mean, the record's far from a complete disaster. It grows on you. Every walking I mean, we should say every walking record grows on you. Like I have a friend who once said the walking records bore me after one month and they're all listened to for the next two months, which uh there's something to be said for that. But it's kind of with 100 miles up, it's impossible to shake the feeling of now what? It's kind of like they hit a yeah. bit of a brick wall in the sense that there's just, 
a lot of shouting, a lot of drumming, kind of more like more ideas and actual songs, which kind of plagued them on their first record. And it's it's a people call it a weird record. I just think they kind of didn't know what the heck they wanted to do, and it's uh it's how it kind of manifests itself. As for like Pussycats, I mean. If you're a fan of that record, of course, that was uh, the Harry Nilsson record where he famously blew his vocals out. Supposedly, uh, there was blood in the microphone when he's trying to sing the first song, the uh, the Jimmy Cliff cover, Many Rivers to Cross. That was the record where he destroyed his voice, and it's produced by John Lennon, who was in the midst of his lost weekend, which was the 18-month period when Yoko kicked him out, and he was doing all sorts of drugs and alcohol and being everyone's buddy-buddy in Los Angeles. So um, it's a cult document, and uh, the Walkman's Pussycats is also a cult document. Although certainly it is fun to see Hamilton Lighthouser lean into the throaty Harry Nilsonisms because his voice is kind of built for that. So I ultimately agree with where you're at. I, I noted this kind of at the start. I think you know you you said especially on 100 Miles Off their 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 record that they released in May. You talked about the ideas of it. To me, like sonically, it sounds the same as uh, Bows and Arrows, but without the desperation, without the need to like prove themselves. And lyrically, it feels like it's saying all the things that their last two records did just without saying them. It's a lot of just kind of like working around ideas, which I think ultimately would serve Hamilton better as a, as a lyricist as they moved into their last three records that have a ton of really good in imagery that in some cases the imagery isn't really resolved in any sort of way. It just adds color, especially on parts of Lisbon that is like such a vibe record. But at this point in their career, it felt like it was essential for the band to really continue saying something. And I just don't really hear anything said on this record. Um, that said, Songs like Lost in Boston, uh, uh, This Job is Killing Me, these songs really showcase still like in hints what the band does so well. Um, Lost in Boston has this like sensation of, it, it feels like the rat, uh, while it highlights this sense of a mid-20s road trip and the normalcy and insanity all meeting at once, where like you're doing these really normal things, you're traveling in a car with other people, but it's such a wild, crazy experience when you're that age and you're getting like that, the, the additional sense of freedom. Uh, and this job is killing me. I mean, piano chords ringing out of chaos. What sounds more like the Walkman than like noise, noise, and then these just like beautiful piano chords that sound like they're played in a studio on the Lower East Side in like some, uh, you know, little uh, closet-sized uh, uh, music lessons uh, uh, house. It's just, it's, it's wild. Um, but this album feels ultimately like a bridge between the early part of the career and what they would explore on Lisbon and Heaven. And I think appropriately... Pitchfork gave this a 6.5. I think it is the most appropriate rating in uh, uh, Walkman history by Pitchfork. And I I'm curious what it would get today. I think it would probably get the same thing. It's it's a six and a half record. It's fine. Yeah. Um, Pussycats. So this record, it's important to note um, the studio that Walter, Matt, and Paul built following the dissolution of Jonathan Fire Eater was on the uh, uh, Columbia University campus. And it's where they recorded their first EPs and the first three LPs. This was being bought back in 2006 by Columbia University. And this was their last project there. 
Um, it took about 10 days from the record this. It's essentially a note for note recreation of Harry Nilsson's Pussycats. And you get this real sense. I, I like this from an exercise standpoint. Uh, you get this as a, a, um, the connection between Harry Nilsson's vocal styling, a dedication to the American songbook, fascination with Caribbean sounds and the Walkman's evolving style that kind of showcases where the band is at at this point in their career. And you'd hear this kind of immediately as they moved into you and me two years later. Um, as I was listening to this though, I got this like deep, deep connection between the Walkman as a band and 70s singer songwriters. And at the time, and this is coming about a year, not even a year, this is like eight months before Wilco is going to release really Sky Blue Sky, that feels like a 70s singer-songwriter record in all of its emotion, in all of its like nakedness, in all of its kind of a contemplative Sunday morning, serious dad rock vibe to it. This felt like the most uncool thing in 2006 but feels now like it's much more part of the musical lexicon for people our age. And it feels like it's a, a period in music history. Like you think about uh, Lana Del Rey, uh, her records are so steeped in 70s singer-songwriter, like them or not. Like they're so steeped in there and she's one of the most successful artists around right now. I'm curious from your perspective, when did 70s singer-songwriters become cool again in larger culture? Um... I don't know if they ever were specifically uncool, but certainly, I mean, Harry Nilsson, he's always loomed large, especially with Pussycats, just because it has such, like, the aura and the legend around it. I mean, Harry Nilsson, he kind of has, like, uh, the Charles Bukowski hard-drinking, everyone's drug buddy, like, Los Angeles, Lost Weekend vibe, which is kind of the whole deal with, with Pussycats. But in terms of 70s singer-songwriters, got to think about James Brown, uh, think about James Taylor, think about Jackson Brown, Harry Nilsson. Hmm. Was there ever like a renaissance so much as, I mean, all of them kind of stumbled the 80s because that was what 70s singer-songwriters did. There was a bit of like a 90s revival. So I don't know if they ever became cool again in larger culture. Like I'm not entirely sure that I agree. I don't know if they ever went away. But specifically, Harry Nilsson as relates to the Walkman because, I mean, they kind of sound like Harry Nilsson. I feel like the earnestness and the schmaltiness of a lot of these albums from the 70s fell out of fashion in the 90s and 2000s. And I think like the immediate pushback against an album like Sky Blue Sky was this like last gasp of like, no, we're not doing this. Like we're not taking edgy rock and roll music and putting a cable knit sweater on it mm. and coming inside after a, an afternoon mowing the lawn to sit down to watch golf. Like we don't want to know your thoughts about that sort of shit. You guys keep that to yourselves. And now I feel like when I think about, you know, um, you know, where the national went in the late to the late two thousands and the 2010s, when I think about like, you know, um, an artist like Riley Walker who can toe the line between 70s singer-songwriter and uh, Gabriel-era Genesis and weird experimentation. Um, I think about uh, an album I loved from 2021, Corey Hansen, um, uh, and, and you know, the guys in, um, in, in Wand who are, who are kind of toeing the line between 
Radiohead, but also like these very uh, emotional uh, stories that they're telling you. Um, I think about like what Kurt Vile does when he mm. uh, just gives you like a full breakdown of what it's like to be a dad who also happens to play guitar. I think about the war on drugs for Christ's sake. Like <laughs> that is like the most, like that band is not big without a, a, a yearning from uh today's middle-aged rock and roll fans for like truly contemplative music. Right. And I don't want to say that like the Walkman doing this was like the first, you know, there, there, there were obviously a lot of artists that were starting to figure out um, what this music meant updated in some cases, but I felt listening to Pussycats a sense of like them tipping their cap to a style of music that had gone out of fashion and it ultimately helped to inform uh, where they were going to go, uh, throughout their, um, uh, their larger, like the, the last half of their career. I will say just two last things about this album. Subterranean homesick blues sounds fucking lifeless. Like what the hell? How do you not get more emotion out of that? Um, the best song on this album, hands down is the cover of a uh, loop de loop. Okay. I was going to say many rivers to cross. There's just so much energy. Like they, they sound like they're, they sound like they spent four hours getting drunk at their neighborhood pub just to stumble home and record that at like one thirty in the morning <laughs> with, with Hamilton, you know, just blaring out the lyrics. It's great. Before we go into the home stretch of the final three Walkman albums, we're going to play you uh, some song samples. We're going to do uh, from each of the records we talked about, We've Been Had... Little House of Savages, Louisiana, and Loop de Loop. So each of those records, each of those songs, from each of the four records we have discussed, in order. Let's listen. Tell me to keep trying me. 
So we structured this episode a particular way that if you are new to the Walkman, you get intro to who this band is, get a little palate cleanser, and now we move into probably probably their peak record and then two denouement records that really, really showcase this band and, and what could have been, but this like band with all these tricks, all these tools that they're playing with. 
Um, so we have three records that we want to discuss here. Each came out in two in every two years. The band did a really good job of even near even year uh, deliveries in the uh, 2000s and early 2010s. Um, the first record is "You and Me," which is an absolute peak, peak record. It's a classic return to form, where the band also sounds a decade older and wiser, even though not much time has passed. There's this sense that we just got to get through our lives right now. And in the future, things will be good, good again. That permeates this record. To me, this record, You and Me, which came out in 2008, this is the Great Recession in a record. Even though it predated the Great Recession by four weeks, this album sounds like 2008, 2009 indie rock to me more than anything else. Dave, what are your thoughts on You and Me? It's the best Walkman album, and it's not even really close. It was my favorite album from 2008. It's by, I mean, yeah, it's my favorite Walkman record. <clears throat> I have it on good detail that the band also thinks that it's their best record. And it's just kind of, it's a consolidation of strengths, and at the same time, they're able to bring out a level of emotion and a feeling of nostalgia for the past that usually comes from band members twice their age. I, mean, I think Hamilton Lighthouse was like 29 years old when he made this record. And it's a pretty Jesus. heavy, sad, bastard record for a 29-year-old to make. I mean, they talk about Walkman records generally being whiskey-soaked. Well, You and Me isn't so much whiskey-soaked as you basically just doing a fucking faceplant into the copper still. Also, listen up, because I'm only going to say this once. There's a, a short list of things that makes me cry. The last 15 minutes of the movie, uh, the movie Arrival, the Sleepy Time episode of Bluey, human interest stories involving professional baseball players and 9-11 orphans, and the second-to-last song on You and Me called I Lost You. All of these things fucking wreck Dave Goldstein. I Lost You, I think it's my favorite Walkman song, I think it's the best Walkman song, and it basically finds a way to compress like a Frank Capra movie into a three-minute pop song. It's just, uh, God, one time I went to a friend's bachelor party, and it involved eating lots of barbecue and drinking lots of beer, and I think there might have been like a gun shooting range or something. I just thought it ended up at like one o'clock in the morning, slumped over in my friend's chair, listening to this record. And when like I lost you came, I just started like bawling. It has that power. Also, uh, I think probably the song Canadian Girl is the second best Walkman song. That's like a kind of song that almost feels like it could be on like a jukebox in a bar somewhere, almost like Cat Power could have covered it. It's got like a shimmy and kind of like a sense of longing and nostalgia and doo-wop that's totally unique to this band. Red Moon is an amazing song. In the New Year, one of their classic anthems. I mean, those three songs, plus I Lost You, are probably my four favorite, favorite Walkman songs. It's just, it's an unbelievable record. It's a record you can get lost in. Is it overlong? Probably. Every Walkman album is kind of overlong to a certain extent. It gets a little... Uh, interchangeable in the back half, but it's um, 
it's a major accomplishment, and I'm hoping to hear a bunch of songs off it when I see the next month. Did you ever see the HBO documentary Nine Innings from Ground Zero? I have. I don't recall much of it, but I I did. Wasn't it a kind of about? Was it about the Yankees and the Mets and like their charitable efforts? Or am I thinking it's about something else? It's uh, it's the it's the 2001 season post 9-11 uh, focuses on the Yankees uh, and their amazing comeback in the uh, world series to push the series to seven before ultimately losing. But yes. it, it, it toggles between these first responders and the men who are responsible with uh, cleaning ground zero and, and excavating ground zero in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks and the Yankees players who who helped inspire the city at, at that point in time. Mm. And you talk about that sentiment of human interest stories, baseball, 9-11 orphans, 9-11 and what that did to the city uh, and what it did to the country. There's not a, you cannot watch that knowing what you know about America and about what you know about America in the 2000s and what you know about baseball without becoming weepy. Yeah. And it's like the perfect sentiment for this band. And this record has that throughout. Um, this record comes out, as I noted, three weeks before the financial crisis of September 2008, which would onset the Great Recession. It sounds like a band that knows something dreadful, something awful, something life-affecting is about to happen. And it's going to shake the foundations of all of our lives. And yet there are still moments amidst all of that chaos, all of that sadness that make it worth living. And there's this great moment in the baseball documentary I was telling you about where they, they interview this guy who was leading a crew that was excavating part of the, uh, of ground zero. And they talk about this night that these guys who had been working there for months and it's getting colder and colder, they were all brought inside and served steak dinner and the Yankees game was, was put on. It was the game that the Yankees came back and won on a, on a um, uh, Derek Jeter home run uh, to, to, to end the game and send it back to Arizona. And these guys are just weeping and these guys are just crying. And that sentiment is all over this entire record. Yeah. Um, in, the, in the new year is the whole Walkman formula in one place. Yep. yep. You got shimmering guitars, Rattle, rattling rhythm section, Hamilton blaring an earworm chorus. It's a surge. And it's all about the follow-up. It's a surge. It's a surge, and it's all about the follow-up to New Year's Eve. This is all everything that happens after New Year's Eve. This is us moving into the new year. What are we going to do with this brand new year that we have? Um, I, I don't know, man. I When I listen to this record, it is overlong. It's 51 minutes. This kind of gets back to every... Um, Everyone uh, who pretended like me is gone, but it ultimately, the more I listen to it, the more I want to live in, in its, in its uh, space. And the more that it makes me strangely nostalgic for this really difficult and really challenging period in American history. Like I said, I keep saying this came out right around the time that the great recession hit. What are like for you, great, like really important great recession records from this, from this time period that like kind of really signified where we were at as a country. Although it came out in 2007, certainly the nationals boxer is what I put there. I kind of put you and me up there, like around with boxer in terms of like, 
delicious sad bastard music. Um, didn't Grizzly Bears Vecatimus come out like around this time? Yeah, it came out spring '09. Okay, um, I, f- I feel like that and Meriwether Post Pavilion kind of, especially like the song "My Girls," like kind of touches on these themes of making use of 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 having little and 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 having like the, a really good life without having a ton of material possessions and kind of eschewing the american uh um um kind of mindset at the time of consumerism you said boxer i think high violet sounds like the angriest record at where america was at at that point in time and what opportunities were being lost for an entire generation um M83 had that record. Um, Hurry Up, We're Dreaming. Hurry Up, We're Dreaming. Right. That really, to me, just sounds like, like that is, the, uh, I was 23, 24 years old when the Great Recession hit, when Obama got elected. Hurry Up, We're Dreaming sounds to me like that sentiment of being 25, 26 years old, those calls at midnight saying, hey, let's go out to another bar. So the band releases You and Me. It. I think we would agree is a defining, if not the defining record for the band. They then make off for Europe and they spend a significant amount of time in Portugal recording their next record. At this point, a little bit of money, ability to really explore and uh, spend a little bit of time making a record, get out of their comfort zone and they record Lisbon, their tribute to their period in time in Portugal, which comes out in 2010. Uh, it comes out basically two years, just over two years after You and Me came out. This record was my introduction to the Walkman. So I talked about like this sentiment of for me kind of feeling like I was like catching up at the tail end of the two thousands. And I remember this album, I just gotten back from a year spent living in South Korea. My wife and I, my girlfriend at the time, soon to be wife. Uh, she and I drove across the country. We're spending some time in Southern California, helping her brother on his new house. And we are about to move to Portland, Oregon. And I felt like I had everything figured out, but I had these gigantic, uh, you know, existential fears about what I was walking into, both from a marriage standpoint, from a fact that we were moving to Portland, Oregon, this place that we dreamed about living all throughout college. And I was like, wait, is this just it? Like, what am, like, what am I going to do? Like, am I, am I really going to want whatever job I get? Like, are, are we going to be happy with our neighborhood? Are we going to be happy with this and that? We would learn over two years that that city was not necessarily right for us, um, which would lead us traveling again before we would ultimately settle down a few years later. But I had these great existential battles in my head. And it was around this time that someone said, you really like the national have you listened to the Walkman? And they said, they've got a new record out. You should check it out. And I got Lisbon and this record felt like it was everything I wanted to hear at the moment, at that moment, because it feels like this relaxing breath of fresh air that you get from traveling, from being out of your comfort zone. But lyrically, there's all that messiness and all that existential struggle that I was feeling at the time. So you have this like 
push and pull and this contrast between the way that the album sounds and the way the album feels, which is very breezy and relaxed at times with this kind of frenetic vocal styling and lyricism from Lighthouser that immediately sounded unlike anything I'd ever heard. And as Dave talked about at the start of this, there's such a unique approach that the Walkmen have to songwriting and you hear it immediately here in Lisbon. Now, as I've learned more about the band, this feels something like a late career sidestep in a sense. Um, I don't think it has the power that you and me or bows and arrows had. Um, it's not as focused as heaven, but I kind of like that about it. I love the messiness. I love the dreaminess of it. Um, while also living in, you know, around this time, I was really getting into the national and Matt Berenger's ability to speak so plainly and so clearly about what it meant to be a late twenties, early thirties man trying to survive in the 20th century and how mundane and, uh, uh, first world, the problems he was singing about were, but they were still problems. They were still feelings that he had. And I was getting a lot of that from Hamilton Lighthouser in a completely different way. Um, Dave, you were obviously, you and me was your favorite record of 2008. I've got to imagine you were really excited for this record to come out. What were your thoughts as this came out? What are your thoughts on this album? Lisbon is a good album. It's uh, it's modest, maybe a little bit slight. I mean, to me, it kind of sounds like an excellent B-Sides collection. To me, it's one of the mm. classic Exhale albums. I mean, after You and Me, there was no way they were going to top that, and they seem cognizant of that, so they don't really try. They almost sound a bit wiped out. Like, to me, Lisbon, it sort of seems like an admission that they were well past their commercial peak. The audience wasn't getting any bigger. They were kind of starting to get lapped by the younger bands that they had influenced, like the National, like Vampire Weekend. And despite the serious quality of their output, almost like they kind of hit a bit of a wall. It almost reminds me of the situation, um, like Tim Buckley, he released Star Sailor, his peak album, total whacked out, bloodletting, record and he was just he got wiped the fuck out after all the was for the do after that was put out two dumb white boy funk albums and lisbon is way better than the last two tim bucky records but it's kind of feels like they weren't really reaching for the brass ring anymore like everything quality songs juveniles great album opener stranded has this like great horn part that almost kind of sounds like silent night uh Angela Surf City is one of their more successful, the rat-style rock and roll songs. Nothing bad. Everything's good. But it also does not reach the emotional peaks of you and me, and it wasn't designed to. But with this record, kind of knowing what their career arc is, you can kind of start to see the finish line. Yeah, and it kind of makes me think about like where, where this band fits in terms of 2000s indie rock, because that's obviously... One of the things that's so interesting about them versus some of the other bands that we've explored uh, as in these kind of chronological deep dives, you know, Pavement is the defining indie rock band of the 1990s, and their story is kind of the arc of indie rock in the 90s. Um, U2 is the defining band in terms of um, you want to be the biggest band on earth. What are the moves that you make to do that? 
Wilco is kind of this defining band of um, what does it mean to amalgamate styles, Radiohead similar to this, where you can be commercially successful, but also, you know, artistically uh, um, have, have a ton of integrity, um, kind of in the same way that like a, like a Paul Thomas Anderson directs movies, where you can have a popcorn movie with Paul Thomas Anderson, but it also will make you think really deeply. Like that's kind of where Wilco and Radiohead reside in terms of music. The Walkmen are kind of this band that like, they don't fit in the era that they were a part of, but I don't know how the two thousands are the two thousands without a band like the Walkman and without their throwback style, but also their, uh, slang that was so much a part of that period in time, their reverence for, you know, generations prior to them, their reverence for a simpler time in history. Um, but also their, as you start to hear in this record, as you talk about the idea of the exhale, their satisfaction with the work that they've done and their kind of acceptance that it may not get much bigger, but it's pretty good that we got it this big and it's pretty good that we accomplished what we did. Let's just savor it for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, with all that, like where, where do you see them fitting in 2000s indie rock? I see them kind of hovering above it all. Like... They weren't stylish. I mean, they're like stylish, but they weren't like right. scrappy heartthrobs like the Strokes. They weren't right. charismatic like Karen. They weren't Oak. really cool. No, exactly. They weren't cool. Even though they're like really cool guys. Yeah. Like, I would totally hang out with all of these guys, but I don't think they're very cool. I would totally hang out with them at like a Christmas party and do whiskey, <laughs> drink whiskey, and talk about the new year and watch them under the mistletoe and stuff like that. Whereas. With the strokes, you want to like do blow at them and like at like three o'clock in the morning. The Walkman weren't doing blow at three o'clock in the morning in clubs. That wasn't uh, that wasn't their mo. So I yeah they were. I keep saying lumped in with the scene and yet not of it. Kind of floating above, not like floating above like they were too good for these bands, but just sort of you know kind of perched above on high, watching what goes on. It almost I mean kind of. You keep turning back to the 70s singer-songwriter. It almost feels like they became a legacy band pretty quickly. Mm. And Lisbon, if they wanted to keep going, Lisbon would have been like the first album of kind of like the legacy band era. Like, let's say when Pearl Jam gets to like, oh, I don't know, Riot Act or Self-Titled, they're kind of like, you know, no longer reaching for the brass ring, but still putting out quality works. Yeah. Yeah, you get that sense from this. And I think like the setting of this record has a lot to do with it. The idea that this is a record that's made as, as a testament to Europe and, and as, as a, uh, an inspiration of Europe uh, on, on the band and on these guys, you know, they're in their early 30s at this point in time, having this opportunity to travel for their careers in a manner that allows them to really kind of be a part of the culture, not just going from like conference room to conference room in various cities. They're really, you know, they're passing through cities in a day, passing through countries in a day, but they're ultimately experiencing it um, and having it inform where they're at. I- I'm curious, th- this record came out at a time when I was traveling the most that I've ever traveled in my life across a seven year period in time and potentially the most I ever will travel. I don't really know. I don't have any like international trips on the horizon, but I know that you are, are fairly well traveled yourself. Mm. I'm curious what Europe 
as an idea means to you as, as, uh, as you sit here today talking about the Walkman? Goodness. I was last in Europe when I was in Dublin, I think back in 2017. And then in 2013, I was in France and Belgium. We did Paris and Brussels. Um, what does Europe mean to me? Europe is, uh, in addition to a place where I can get away from my children, it's just a kind of a different, different cultures, foreign cultures, different food, different beer. They don't speak English unless they absolutely have to, and it's definitely at a place. I just remember walking around Brussels and kind of looking up at the Grand Place and thinking uh, something extremely foreign about it. This is like you know, those buildings date back to the 16th century. Um, I remember just in Paris thinking how incredibly well-preserved it was relative to New York City. Like you just, you get out of the metro and you look around and you say, wow, this is unquestionably foreign. It's unquestionably beautiful. The Parisians seem to understand something I don't because they're smoking all the time. Just the <laughs> feeling of being, uh, it's okay to be a tourist sometimes. Being a stranger, stranger in a strange land like I enjoyed doing the touristy things without necessarily giving off the idea that I didn't, I didn't have a fanny pack. I didn't have my map out. I was able to get absorbed into the city. Much like the Walkman. I mean, I actually, I've not been to Lisbon. I'm very curious to go to Portugal. I think it's doesn't not quite as many hours on a plane as some other parts in Europe because relative to where it's located. It's interesting you talk about like the idea of walking around and a like slightly different <clears throat> mental perspective, you know, be it things like still smoking, be it how clean cities are, how, how, how beautiful some of these cities are, uh, the food, the emphasis on food. You know, when I listen to this record and when I think about Europe, it, I'm always struck by the same desire to just like wander without any sort of destination or goal in mind and kind of walk slowly and allow diversions to take over and digressions to take over and being in like a long winded unending conversation and hear music and the temperature is always like just right. Like something about where Europe is located in the world. If you're there between like May and October, it's just like, you got to wear a sweater, you got to wear jeans but it's like, you're not too hot. You're not too cold. Everything just feels good. The food is all like really well prepared with really good ingredients. Um, and when I listen to this record, when I think about Europe, I think about like that very difficult place to get to where you feel completely at peace, stimulated, not lazy, but completely at peace. And that is like, in a nutshell, what I think about and what I, what I love about Europe. And I get that on this record. Like this album has a song towards the end, uh, or the last two songs on the record, While I Shovel the Snow and Lisbon, which is I, I, my only way of describing it. They lazily wrap up the album. You know, uh, While I Shovel the Snow has this beautiful line, half of my life I've been watching, half of my life I've been waking up. And I just get this sense of, Suddenly, life just feels like this fu funny dream. It's getting more complicated. These guys are about to become dads. Some of them have become dads already. Life is about to become a little bit more challenging, but the moments of bliss still appear. And, I, and I, when I hear this record, it's that, those pockets of bliss that make it all okay, even though everything 
is going to become harder, more stressful, more complicated as the years pass by. We'll say uh, a pass behind beyond the pond guest, my good friend Colin, uh, my good friend Conrad Doucette, who uh, was actually he was in some bands and uh, around the time of the walk when he was in a band called Taka Taka. I know he had uh, also done some other work with some members of the National and some members of the Walkman. He knows the guys in the band personally, and he told me that the Walkman were always considered to be your favorite band's favorite band. So they were thought of as extremely, extremely uh, highly of New York City musicians. So it was always like, yeah, they might not have been as commercially successful, but every musician, their favorite band is the Walkman. Their, your favorite musician's favorite band. And that, uh, that certainly comes through in the final three albums that we are going to discuss. So I think we should transition to uh, their six. And as at this point, final album, 2012, called Heaven. I remember back in 2012, I did not have any children. I was 32 years old. I wrote a review of this album for uh, the website CopeMachineGlow.com, which said it was a good record, but I said it didn't have any tempo changes, and it sounded like a record made by men twice the age of the Walkman. And yeah, they're all dads. Shouldn't daddy want to like rock and roll a bit to impress his kids? It was a little, a little snarky. A lot of the record reviews I wrote were snarky because that was a time when I was kind of a bit of an asshole 15 years ago. I would take a lot of that review back. I happen to love this record, and I don't think you can fully appreciate the Walkman's Heaven until you're a parent, until you're a mother, until you're a father because the record just oozes with the contentment of domesticity. Um, this isn't so much the Brooklyn record as it feels like a Hudson Valley record. This is the most Sunday morning record that the Walkman have ever made. And it ends up being a perfect swan song, whether or not it was intended as such. It ties a really neat bow on their discography, and especially with the title track, which has a video which is all um, compilations of like photos and past performances. It's purely looking backwards. The title track was also used to great effect, I'm told, in the final episode of How I Met Your Mother. So if you go onto iTunes and see that it has the most streams, that's why. But the whole record, it's about looking back on their career. It's about raising children. And it's about just saying like, all right. I'm good. Let's stop this right here while we could make a good album, while we could still enjoy family life, and let's just get on to whatever the next thing is. Yeah, I agree with everything you just said. I think the only thing I'll add is um, this record was my number one record of 2012. I did not have kids in 2012, mm. but I was getting married in 2012, which was an experience I was both incredibly, I was looking forward to like crazy. And I was also dreading in a very heavy way because it just felt like this, like very permanent total commitment that I was, uh, I was making at a very young age. Like there were moments where I was just like terrified about what was going to happen. It was ultimately a very good thing, but this album would set me at ease where I would listen to this and that sense of, uh, 
the the contentment with domesticity the the idea that there's all that world and this this goes back to kind of what i was talking about during the bows and arrows segment where bows and arrows is such a record of what it's like to go through that transition where you're starting to see some of your friends commit to the life beyond what we're all doing and some of your friends and you may be included in this are still holding on to what you had because you know it's going to be gone in a couple of years by the time you get to heaven the guys who are singing in heaven have no desire to go out on a friday night no they want to be in maybe watch a nice prestige tv show watch a couple movies maybe watch some baseball maybe have a beer have a glass of whiskey kids running around they're really concerned about the steak that they're going to cook this weekend. They're trying this really cool new uh, New York Times cooking recipe that you know they've been reading about. They got all the ingredients for. They're going to have a nice Saturday afternoon, put on some music, crack a bottle of wine. These are dads that like the most that they're going to do is have a gummy and sink into the couch watching The Grateful Dead. Like these are ultimately when they write this record. They are writing about us and where we're at in our lives at this point in time. Yep. When it came out, while I didn't necessarily feel the snark that you felt, I definitely agree with what you're talking about. It is extremely one note and it is extremely uh, relaxed and laid back compared to the urgency and the frenetic energy that we hear in the best of the Walkman. It's a very heavily acoustic record. Um, there's electric guitars, but there's absolutely no distortion, no effects. It's it's just, this is who the band is at this point in time. This is what we're feeling right now. And this is as clearly and plainly as we can put that to paper. Um, while I wish that we could have heard the 2014 version of the Walkman that maybe was a little bit stressed out because... Who knows? Maybe finances are tight because you, you have a couple more kids and you're trying to make things work and you're leaving home and you're coming back home. You're having this kind of challenging experience being a parent who's also a rock star. I would have loved to have heard the other side of this. There is a part of me that loves the fact that this band closed out with a statement like this that celebrates their friendship but also celebrates where they're at in life at this point in time and, and showcases a, a, a happiness within the moment. I mean, it has good songs as well. Like the first song, mm-hmm. We Can't Be Beat, it's just basically an ode to loving your wife. And it's also uh, the clearest sounding album they've ever released. You still get the trademark trilling and reverb, but you can make out, make out every single word that Hamilton Lighthouse is saying. It sounds like it was like recorded like really close to the microphones or something. Um, there's a very cool song in it that's unlike anything they've done before called Line by Line, which almost has a bit yeah. of a talk-talk vibe. Almost sounds a bit yeah. like, a, like a Hebrew prayer in the middle of the record. It's very cool. There's song... You get Love is Luck and Heartbreaker yep. back-to-back. There are two bangers. Towards the tail end of the record, you get The Love You Love and Heaven two bangers back to back. Like there's, there's a real good, well, it sounds one note to a certain degree. It sounds thematically all unified in a way that there's no, there's none of that kind of digression that you get on Lisbon. Um, there are peaks and valleys in a really cool way. You talk about line by line, like that is the perfect middle of the record song to just give you a break, give you a breath, 
but also still keep you completely focused. Yeah, that's just a guitar and a volume pedal and Hamilton Lighthouser, and it's very awesome. All right, so quickly, as we had done with the four prior Walkman albums with these three, we're going to play uh, a little bit of snippets of three songs. You're going to hear In the New Year from You and Me, Juveniles from Lisbon, and Heartbreaker from Heaven.
So before we wrap up this episode, we did just want to give a quick overview of what the Walkman did post-Heaven, because they broke up in a way that somewhat shocked people in 2013. They said it was an extended hiatus. They didn't give a ton of indication in terms of if they were ever going to play shows again. As we know now, here in March of 2023, the Walkman are about to play five shows at, is it the Beacon Theater? Webster Hall. Webster Hall in New York City. Dave, you will be going to one of those shows. Yes. Um, between 2013 and 2023, though, this band has not gone away in terms of their individual members. Hamilton Lighthouser has been incredibly prolific, recording solo albums, Black Hours, and The Loves of Your Life, as well as his record with um, Rostam. Uh, I had a dream that you were mine that came out in 2016 that ended up being my number two record of 2016. I really, really liked that album. I loved what uh, they accomplished on it. It sounded like the best parts of what Rostam brought to Vampire Weekend, the best parts of what Hamilton brought to The Walkman, all combined in a way I never expected it to work. Outside of that, I haven't really loved his solo work. It kind of resides in that... 40s kind of schmaltzy lounge uh type of uh uh, uh delivery what, what are your thoughts on on his work specifically since the walkman disbanded it's fine but it's diet coke compared to the walkman just uh you talk about the 40s and 50s schmaltz to drive that point home he recorded an album live at cafe carlisle which is manhattan's uh ode to the past of course uh it's the bar where it has uh, the illustration from Ludwig Bebelmans, who, of course, is known for the children's book Madeline. That's where you used to be able to hear Woody Allen playing clarinet. There, maybe he still does that. Maybe he's been disgraced there. I don't know. But there's all sorts of torch singers there, and he does a cover of Big Thief's Not on the Cafe Carlisle record, and it's not very good. So, um, yeah, out of those records, certainly the Rostam album, which you discussed, that is the best one by far. And uh, the other members of the Walkman, they put out various records. I think there's also been um, some children's records. I think Walter Martin might have written uh, some commercial jingles for television as well. Um, Peter Matthew Bauer has put out albums. And now uh, I think Matt Barrick, he's a drummer for Fleet Foxes, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and his work, I think, has been the most impressive outside of I Had a Dream That You Were Mine. Um, Fleet Fox has put out <clears throat> two fantastic records in uh, the uh, the 2010s and the early 2020s, um, notably Crack Up in 2017 and Shore in uh, 2019, two records that 
I think expanded uh, on the ideas that Robin Pecknold began within Fleet Foxes in the late 2000s. And Matt Barrick's drums really, really showcase uh, a ton happening under the surface in those lyrics. So really, really good stuff. But yeah, um, Walter Martin and Peter Matthew Bauer have released quite a few records, specifically Bauer. I've listened to them all. It's kind of the same way I feel about Hamilton's work outside of uh, I Had a Dream That You Were Mine. It sounds like the Walkman without whatever that thing is that, that made the Walkman so special throughout the 2000s. And, you know, I've got to imagine where these guys are at in life. It was hard to consider, you know, probably through music lessons, through some semblance of royalties, through uh, continuing to play music, continuing to play shows. These guys have cobbled together uh, a decent life raising kids in New York City. I've got to imagine that this lifestyle was more preferable for them in the way that they wanted to raise their kids than being on the road throughout the 2010s would have been. So I admire it. I think it's a really, uh, it's really special that these guys ended up living the lives that they ended up living. Um, even though I would have loved to have continued to hear music from them, but it is, I don't know. Um, I feel like torn as a fan while at the same time admiring the decisions that they made, but they are coming back here for five shows. They will be playing in April. I think it's more than five. I think it expanded. I think they're like playing some shows in Philadelphia, maybe a festival or two. Yeah. I think it's more than just New York city. Yeah. So do you think that this is a comeback? Do you you expect new Walkman songs? Do you expect new Walkman material? Do you expect a new Walkman album? Or do you think that this is just, let's come back, make some money, play music again, and kind of see where we go from there? I'm not anticipating any new material. I think it's, let's do this because it'll be fun. We'll see where it goes. Maybe it'll end up being so fun that they decide to put out singles or put out a new record but I don't have any expectations of like a new Walkman album. I just think it's kind of, I mean, none of them are that, oh, they're probably, I think Hamilton Lighthouse is 44. I mean, none of them are in their 50s. They're all in their late 40s. They're young enough that they can still do it. They can still enjoy it. Um, yeah, I don't, I'll be happy with whatever I get. I'm not expecting expecting new songs. In fact, I don't want to hear new songs. I don't want them to say, I don't want him to replace songs from you and me with something new that we put out. But what if it's great? What if it's like, you know, 10 years later, here's where our heads are at. And you're like, oh, fuck, I'm right back in that sentiment. But it's like, it's now. The the fact that they're the ages that they're at, I kind of feel like unless something goes wrong with these shows, and by all accounts, they seem like they're still really friendly. But unless something goes wrong, I got to figure they're going to at least see if they can, you know, they, they, they can sell more records putting out Walkman albums than they can solo albums. So I've got oh, to absolutely. imagine there's at least like a sense of, could we do this our own way where we don't feel the pressures to tour on a regular basis, where we don't necessarily have to be making records every two years, but we can put out a record once every five years, kind of the Fleet Foxes model, the Grizzly Bear model. And these shows sold out really quickly. I was... I figured they would sell out, but it would be like maybe sell out within 24 hours, sell out during the week. The show sold out in like five minutes. There was, I think there was a much 
more significant demand for the Walkman than even the band realized because they had to add shows. Well, you know what that says? I mean, that is like the original Walkman theme of nostalgia. Life was better before. Let's, let's, let's get back to that period. That is what all these listeners want is that nostalgia for what it was like to be in their twenties, going to see Walkman shows in New York city. That is a, that is an important and driving factor. And I can't wait. The Walkman are strangely one of those indie rock bands that have shows on the Relisten app. And some of them sound quite good. There's one from uh, 2012 in Chicago that is like 33 songs and it's excellent. Um, I would love to, and I'm hoping that one of these shows from Webster Hall appears on Relisten shortly after after them. But um, if, you, if you're new to this band, we hope that you have enjoyed this breakdown of what we think is one of the greatest bands of the 2000s. If you're an old fan of The Walkman, we hope that we did justice and service by Mr. Lighthouser and company. Anything else that we got to say? Um, if any members of The Walkman listen to this podcast, don't hate us. We love you guys. Hopefully that comes through. <laughs> that comes through in, so. in the podcast. It's all love. We're just, we got our opinions. We would not have bothered to do a walk with deep dive if we weren't deeply invested in this band. So, now you guys are like the fifth band that we've done this over yeah. five years. We, we love you guys very much. So, hey, and if you've gotten this far, that means you must have been, uh, you must have enjoyed it. And you, listener, if you've gotten this far, thank you for hanging with us. Really appreciate it. Like we said, in 2023, we're trying to put one of these out at least once a month. Maybe more if the Inspirato strikes, but uh, certainly you'll hear from us again in April when I'm thinking we'll probably have something to say about the uh, short little West Coast run of shows that uh, our favorite band Fish has embarked on. And for those of you out there, we did not do a mailbag uh, this episode. We just had so much we wanted to get to, but we have a couple that we were considering for this episode that we we may push to April, but if you do want to reach out to us, if you have a question beyond the pond podcast at gmail.com, shoot us a note, ask us about anything. We will talk about it here on the show when we come back in April. One long word beyond the pond podcast at gmail.com. Certainly send us something. Maybe we'll end up having an all mailbag episode at some point, but know that we will come back We'll hold hands, we will sing Kumbaya, and as always, we'll go beyond the pond.